From ThatShelf.com, this is Black Hole Films. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. What's a black hole film, you ask? Well, you know those films you always meant to get around to watching, but you never did for whatever reason? Well, that's what they are. And this podcast is all about embracing them and checking those films off our lists and talking about them and whatever else happens to come up. I'm Canadian filmmaker Jeremy Lalonde, and I will be your host. You can follow me on Twitter at LalondeJeremy, or check out my website, JeremyLalonde.com, for more information on me and my projects. If you like the show, please subscribe to it, rate, review it, and leave a comment on whatever platform it is you're listening. It really does make a difference in helping to get more ears tuning in. And if you like this show, check out the others on the ThatShelf.com family of podcasts. And without further delay, let's get into this week's film. This is episode 170, and today I'm joined by Joey Klein. As an actor, you've seen him in stuff like The Animal Project, The Husband, The Vow, but as a filmmaker, he's made a movie called The Other Half, as well as the most recent, Castle on the Ground, which is available on VOD for you to check out at your will. It's on all the services, just look up Castle on the Ground. And we're going to sit down and watch a film together. All right, so I'm sitting down uh, vicariously via COVID uh, with Joey Klein. Uh, and um, we're watching Meek's Cutoff. I have never seen this film. Neither have I. Uh, and um, before we get into this, we just wanted to drop... I just recently had a film affected by COVID, and it's been released online, James versus The Future Self. But you're in the same boat as me. Yeah. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know that I feel... Uh, I, I got in, I got, uh, in a window and we were just talking before we started just about, you know, feeling quite fortunate right now. I feel like in terms of the world of, uh, uh, professional creatives and filmmakers, I feel quite fortunate because my friend Jamie Dagg was about to make a flick in Sudbury and then they had to come home and my younger brother just finished his film and they don't know what to do with it now. And, you know, having been able to premiere at TIFF and then doing the Canadian, um, circuit, uh, after that, we were supposed to play at South by and obviously that got canceled. And personally, that's very sad because I love that place, but it didn't affect us. We were already, we had our distributors in the States, we had our distributors in Canada. Um, that place is amazing. That city is amazing. The people that run it, like Janet Pearson are amazing. So it's more just to me, like these really lovely people are having a really hard time. Um, and, and we still get to say we got into that festival. So I almost just feel kind of dirty. Like, yeah, we've, we're gotten off really, you know, it, we haven't, it's not that I want to suffer from it, but I don't feel like we have been, other than maybe reviewers are writing reviews with a certain feeling of like, I don't want to watch this dark film right now in my house, which I do think is part of it. That's okay. I can sum it that. Yeah. yeah. And we had the same situation. We, we were basically just finishing up uh, a really great festival run. We had a whole bunch of amazing European festivals that were coming up that we oh, cool. had and couldn't do. Uh, but the same idea, you know, I have a film that was supposed to be shooting, uh, this June. So we'll see when that remounts, but everything's yeah. shut down. I can't complain. We're, uh, we're fine. So your movie is yeah. going to, is going to be where, where can people watch it? First of all, well, give, us the, you, give us the name, give us all the info. The film is a, it's called Castle on the Ground. Um, it, um, in the simplest terms, there's a story involving the opiate epidemic in 2012, and it's set in Sudbury, Ontario, which was a watershed moment where um, OxyContin was taken off the market by Purdue Pharma, and uh, fake OxyContin started flooding the streets of more than anything small towns. Um, but it's about a young boy who 
a teenager who is taking care of his mother who is um, sick and using prescription Oxycontin. And uh, after a big turn of events, he ends up starting to use her leftover stash after she dies and becomes basically entrenched in a codependent friendship with a woman who moves in across the hall who's trying to get out of addiction. It's a story about uh, different intersectional kinds of addictions and, and, and the cycles of how trauma and addiction repeat and um, the ways in which maybe in this moment in time, we run away from pain and grief towards certain kinds of supposed panaceas that end up being, you know, I mean, I don't mean to draw a parallel at all in this moment, but like, it's strange to look at how we're trying to build this vaccine. And uh, I don't think by any means that the cure will be worse than the disease, but at what cost does everything come? And certainly in my story, um, in some ways, per what opiates were supposed to be doing, the cure is definitely worse than the disease uh, when it comes to just dealing with your grief and pain. So it's kind of, uh, maybe it's a cautionary tale. I guess in the simplest terms, I hope it's a, not a bearing a witness, but just, uh, you know, uh, we did our best to lovingly and respectfully render what is true about people suffering from addiction and this opiate genocide right now. And uh, Winnie, can you talk about where it is? Because I don't remember. Mm. <laughs> um, that's a good question. It's on Apple. Um, I'm just bringing up my cheat sheet right now. If you give me a second. It's okay. I watch, well, Winnie's doing that. I can say I watched it last night. I really, really dug it. I shot up in Sudbury too. And so it's fine. I think there's only one location we doubled. It was the uh, that old music, or this, it's, a, it's like a I'm not a Lions Club, but it's like that old. It's turned into like a band place now. You guys use it as like the apartment building, as the abandoned apartment building. Oh, you mean the abandoned school, the village? No, no, no. It's like or the asylum. The asylum. The not an it is the asylum. Yeah, it's the upstairs of it though. So it's like we use the giant main space in the back of it. So there's like one very similar shot where they're going into the back. That we, okay. That's, it's almost the same shot in James versus Creatures of Only Ours is at night. And I was like, oh, my God, I had a huge flashback. And similar when, when he first sneaks into the building coming through that door, it's a yeah. similar angle too. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is so funny. Yeah. Other than that, yeah. like the movies are worlds apart. Yeah. Um, but I love that you're probably one of the very few uh, – Canadian filmmakers shooting up north and using the location as the location. So that was awesome. Thanks, man. Thanks. Yeah. I really, really enjoyed it. And so, and I think, and as I was watching, I was thinking a similar thing in terms of like, you know, we're in, we're in the world trying to create a vaccine. So I think you can, I think there's nothing wrong with drawing parallels to what's going on in our world. Yeah. All right. Winnie, you got your cheat sheet? Yep. Um, You can find the film Castle in the Ground on Bell Rogers. Shaw, Telus, Cineplex Store, Apple, and Google Play. Nice. Thank you very much. So, so Meek's Cutoff, what made you pick this movie? I, 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 before you get into it, I'll say that this is one that's been on my list to watch for a long time. And I forget anything about it except for like a couple of the actors that are in it. Yeah, I mean, similar, I've been meaning to watch it for a long time. I'm a fan of Kelly Reichardt. It's not necessarily always that I actually love the film, but that she's a fucking filmmaker. Oh, is there a, I, I, sorry. Swear away. Oh, okay, thanks. Yeah, thanks. I, 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 I probably swear a bit too much, but I just think that Kelly Reichardt is a cool lady, and I personally love Night Moves. Um, I didn't love Wendy and Lucy, and I didn't love Old Joy, but I really appreciated that. And I just think that she is a true filmmaker. She has an undeniable voice. And I don't necessarily need to watch a film and be like, I loved that. I need to watch something and say, that was a film. 
And, you know, especially in this world of the glut of the superhero megaplex, like temple thing where it's movie making and nobody, it doesn't matter how you cover something. The filmmaking choices don't matter as long as enough people are flying and enough explosions and enough Kool-Aid and propaganda get shoved down my throat. It doesn't matter. And, uh, you know, she is, she is a, a lovely artist who gives a hoot. And I remember reading all kinds of interesting things about this film where like it was very divisive, which I tend to think is a really good sign if something's really divisive. Like some of my favorite films, people have like vehemently hated them. And I'm like, whoa. Uh, and I feel just like she, um, she attacks filmmaking. Like I just saw um, First Cow. Um, uh, right before everything hit, you couldn't go to films anymore. I was in LA and I saw it with my lady. I didn't particularly like the film, but I massively appreciated it. And so I just want to watch the oeuvre of somebody who has an actual style and voice and vision. Um, just like um, uh, the lady who made Never Rarely, Sometimes Always. I haven't watched that yet, but I've seen Beach Rats and I've seen some, uh, something like Love, I think. Um, Eliza Hitman. Yeah. And I like those films. I don't adore them, but she has a voice and a vision. And when you look at her burgeoning filmography, there is um, a continued style throughout, and she is in command of what she's doing. And I think that's very hard to do, and I think they deserve a lot of credit for that. I'm the same way. For me, it's just like, I just want to feel like a film was made by somebody who has like an opinion and a point of view on this, whether or not I share it matters or not but it's like i don't yeah i don't need to love a film to appreciate it yeah yeah um so that was the main reason um also it just is rare to get to do this kind of thing and i know you're a filmmaker and so it just it just seemed like i don't want to watch like i love blade runner i've seen it many times but like we don't need to talk about blade runner it'd be nice to talk about a film like this when i did norm's podcast we talked about james white which i do really love you ever see james white no. It's a film by Josh Mond. The Borderline guys did it, and Chris Abbott starred in it. It was a very personal film. And to me, it's one of those very beautiful films that just, like, tragically doesn't get out there more. But point being, it's just really nice to be able to talk about smaller films that maybe don't get a ton of eyes on them um, in this kind of a, a platform. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we cover a little bit of everything. We go from the gamut of like movies from, you know, the 30s, 40s and 50s all the way up to, you know, as long as something's been released for a bit, I prefer older movies. So anything like this, like this is what, 2010, I think, right? So yeah, yeah, yeah. This falls in that nice line of like something you missed the first time around and, and but have always wanted to get around to. Yeah, yeah. And, and also, it's just nice that the Criterion Channel is curating not only the selections of their like physical catalog, but just like, as you say, like recent past fine films. It's amazing. It's interesting. It's almost like they have a couple of new people over there. Cause even, you know, from their, their catalog as well, they, they put out on, on disc. They, there's this, almost this new like energy of like movies from like the eighties uh, and early '90s that were not appearing before, so it's like you're getting and and stuff that's a bit more popcorny too for fun. Like the Godzilla stuff came out, and uh, and now and they just announced um, Bruce Lee, a box set of Bruce Lee. I've yeah. never seen those movies either. And I'm like, I want to check those out. But like Breakfast Club came out on a Criterion that was just loaded with amazing features and and Princess Bride and those kind of movies. That so like, there's someone in there from our generation that is like pushing 
this other, this new generation of like films that are kind of in danger of maybe disappearing if you don't have the right curators championing them. Yeah, big time. And that, and just that balance too. And it's funny because I feel like, you know, this is my second flick and, and I just had a really nice conversation with the guys from the Howard Greenberg Fund today because my next film is like in development there. And and I'm slowly trying to find my my road to on my terms being maybe a little bit more in the market, a little bit more quote unquote entertaining because I want to because I'm watching Satan Tango a bit less and I'm watching Blade Runner a bit more like just appetite wise, you know, I used to want to sit down and watch a ton of time because I wanted to. And now I'd rather watch Alien. I'd rather watch Heat. I just would. And so there's also just the ways in which that informs my process. And it's nice to see on the criterion in that collection, which has always been the thing I kind of go to first, that they are also putting out the Alan J. Pakula films, like Clue, which to me, like the way Gordon Willis shot and just what they did together is the best of 70s cinema to me personally. Um, And then you get like, yeah, like they released Breakfast Club, which is a really good film. I mean, oh, I it, it still holds up. It's crazy yeah. how much that holds up. Yeah, it's funny. It's like what's nice. It's like all their stuff doesn't feel like it's homework. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas I do have all the Bergman, and I do love Fanny and Alexander, but you know, I don't want to like I I own and I'm very happy to own Shoa, um, but I don't always want to take out Shoa and watch it. <laughs> like, no, that's just it. No, you want like a you want a mixed you want a, a balanced diet of nerddom. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that being said, in terms of that balance, like, you know, they put out a brighter summer day. Like, have you ever seen that? That Edward Yang thing? No. He made before Yi. That is one of my favorite uh, uh, things I own from them. Um, it's four hours, and it's just so good in the simplest way. It's just so good. All right, I'll add it to my list. Yeah, check it out. All right, so I think this is a good time to dive in. Great. I'm going to watch it and speak to you guys in a bit. All right. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. All right, so we just finished. And? I, I actually really loved it. Uh, I had no designs in the films that I recommended for this other than I went on the Criterion channel and just looked at ultimately films that were leaving in May 31st, just opportunistically to watch something that will be leaving soon. And then nice. you, you picked me cut off. But strangely, it was prescient. And like some of the things in the film, just like like where he says, like, we're all in this together now. I mean, she, I guess that's the mark of a very, very fine artist. But there's just so many elements in the film made a couple years after the, I guess, the recession, the ninja mortgages, the Wall Street, you know, so I guess she had her own reasons possibly but how eerily did it like you know apply to to the world we live in oh shit Um, that just that ending yeah i mean that's a bold ending i that made me love the film i was liking it i was appreciating it i was enjoying it and it was one of those very good films where it's like everything about how i actually feel about it will be in how this film ends and i felt the ending was spectacular yeah because it's one of those things because watching it, I'm going, well, either, you know, the heathen, as they refer to him, uh, is either setting them up for death or he's actually doing, you know, he's doing what he's saying he's doing. And I love that it's left up to you to decide what it is. Yeah, me as well. Yeah. And I personally took it as he's not leading them to death. 
they're just a bunch of xenophobic racist pieces of white shit and he's just roaming the land and i find there's like far more interesting also not far more interesting but also added to that elements of like how has he been surviving like there's no water to be found anywhere and and leading up to that moment he had a horse but there's no reason to believe that he came from anywhere where there was all kinds of nourishments and and ways to drink water and yet he was fine so there was just all almost like not by any means mystical but just like un like for all the for all the nuts and bolts of what i think we do in our work being as specific and personal as possible is to me the rub but there were certain amorphous elements to this film which really worked for me that's just it it's like no no if they if they had shown either of those two endings either would have been unsatisfying I think in some yeah. way, like to find out that they were, they're, you know, they were justified, you know, some of them were justified in thinking what they were thinking and then others weren't like, and I love just that you aren't given any of those kind of pieces and that, yeah, it's just, I mean, it's really just comes down to what's your worldview. Do you believe in the good in people or do you believe the negative? It's like a lot, it's a glass half full or half full, empty movie. Uh, and I'm, I'm on the side with you where it's like half full. It's like, I'm, I'm on the side with the Michelle Williams. <laughs> I will blow yeah. Meek's head off. Oh. Yeah, but she was also, a, I thought, a very interesting, realized character because she was no, by no means like, screw you, Meek. I'm going to protect the indigenous man. She was like, I don't know if I trust him. I don't know if, I don't know if, if we're safe. I'm, I'm just strategically trying to you know, have him owe me something. And then you have to ask yourself, is that true? Or is she just outright defending him and then defending herself to her xenophobic, racist friends? But that's the other interesting thing. Like, it's not like they are literal race. They are they are literally prejudiced towards this indigenous man. But she says that character says while like they're like you know working at dawn that she's working like an N word. Do you remember that moment? It's just yeah. that quick moment. I had to start watching it with subtitles because so much of the dialogue was off screen and it was kind of happening somewhat quickly. And you know, he shoots. She shoots in this lovely way where. Um, you could lose a, a, a word here and there, for me at least. So I watched it with subtitles. I'll, I put it on when, when I heard that, because I was like, did I hear that right? And I put it on. <laughs> and I thought that that was a really beautiful moment, because in the simplest terms, they're all just, you know, by our standards, horrible racists. But we yeah. say words right now that in 50 years, probably people say that that's unacceptable. And certainly growing up, I called a lot of things as an eight-year-old retarded. And of course, that's not you know, uh, uh, it's not okay to say. Now, of course, calling somebody the N-word is much worse than the, the kind of street language we grew up in Montreal just, like, throwing around. But in that moment, th- that was just common parlance. That's and just colloquial. That's what they. That's how you referred to that group of people. Entirely. And, and just accepted by everyone in the language. And um, I guess I just felt like, uh, that was a tiny detail woven in as she's literally sewing and stuff uh, in just a very specific and like human way where these people are not angels. They're not devils. They're, they are settlers. They are pilgrims. They're just trying to survive. Yeah. You know, yeah. even like they find that little mini gold rush or massive gold rush, but they're just like, we don't have time for this right now. We'll come back. They leave, they leave that little marker. Yeah. He says we can't drink gold. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 but, but, you know, like also like as soon as she sees the indigenous dude, she, she loads up her gun and starts shooting into the air 
And it, you know, it just makes you think about the time when the Second Amendment, I mean, that must be 100 years after the Second Amendment was written or, or the Constitution was written. But it was written for times like that where you'd have to load a gun uh, and, 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 you know, take, take like 30, 40 seconds between every shot and your, your gun wasn't a war weapon. So it's just like all the like just beautiful details of life yeah. that are just objectively, as much as one can be objective in one's filmmaking, just left on the screen for us to witness per watching in this moment in time. Um, I, I thought it was quite, um, quite loving to the planet and to us as viewers. Yeah. I love that. It, it took like a documentary approach um, and that you just, and more, I mean, in I'll get to this in a second, but, but like that moment where it's just like literally are watching her shoot and then reload and just getting that sense of like, that's how difficult it was. Like you were not, you know, even if you were a fast shot, it was not quick. <laughs> you know, it's a good, I think I remember I, I did a lot of um, uh, heritage documentaries uh, years ago. Okay. And, uh, and, uh, and I think the fastest on record anyone ever was at reloading a musket was 12 seconds. And that was considered lightning fast. Uh, you know, you just think of all the steps you got to put the, put the barrel in, you got to stomp it down, you got to load the flash powder in. And when you're scared and nervous, you know, but what I really appreciated was like, not only the documentary point of view, where you're just kind of like, did I miss something? What's, what am I, what's my catching? But it's like, the more you went along, it's like, oh, this is specifically, you know, from the, the female character's point of view, because we're not catching, like the men are off over there talking and we're just hearing whispers of what they're saying. And that's all they would have heard. Yeah. And we don't necessarily know what the stakes are to their story or where they're going or what they need or want, but it's like, that's kind of what their lives are too. You know, they're just kind of going along and doing what they're told because that's what you do when you're a woman in what is it? The late 1800s. I think it was 1860 or something. Yeah, I like, that's yeah. kind of what you do. You just you go along for the ride because you don't have a whole lot of say. No one gives a shit of your opinion, which I thought was also. I wonder how. I mean, I guess it, there's stories of like you know women who are far stronger than others, obviously. But it's like Michelle Williams' character feels very modern, uh, but I don't think in a way that was necessarily unrealistic. Like this is clearly a group of people that are striking out on their own for reasons we don't even know. Like. Are they leaving a sect of, of, of a religion, of other people? You know, why is it just these three people, these three groups or four groups, three groups? That uh, are, three. It's like three wagons. Yeah. So yeah. why is it, why are these specific people together? We don't get any of that. Are they related in some way? Are they part of some church? We don't know. Yeah. You know, they're just a group that we're catching in the middle of their journey across the desert and then leaving just as they're about to have a very revealing moment about all of their prejudices. <laughs> uh, and we're just getting the moments in between to make an opinion about how we feel about these people in this world. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Like uh, I wrote a couple of things down for how, how it all worked. that really stuck with me. Um, uh, <laughs> there's a moment where one of them said to the other, mighty white of you, um, in terms of just, you know, what was accepted parlance back then. I briefly dated a girl in Texas, not in 1860, in like the late 20 aughts maybe. 
like maybe two thousand and nine or something. I don't remember. But certainly uh, in a group of her friends that were overtly racist, um, one gal said to me when this girl I was briefly dating went to the bathroom, she said, if it ain't white, it ain't right. Oof. And I, I was so ignorant. I yeah. did not at all think this girl's friends in Texas, I understood that racism was very prevalent in America, had lived in America, wasn't ignorant to that, but she was liberal. And I just never thought her friends would be overt, horrible racists. And of course, yes, it's just the way people talk back then, but they were horrible racists and they had slaves and they destroyed lives. And we just, you know, watched them meander, which I like about what she did. She didn't put any kind of subjective filmmaking point of view on shame on these people. They, we just watched their lives. And as you say, we got to formulate so many of our own opinions and fill in certain blanks, which I think is a mark of really good filmmaking. Yeah, I, I mean, I had the same experience growing up. I come from a small town where I, I call it ignorant, casual racism, just because people don't know any better. But that doesn't mean, and I got, it's funny, like when I made my film, How to Plan an Origin in a Small Town, it's about small town people that are similar to the ones I grew up with. And, you know, a couple of the characters make very off-colored racist jokes. And I remember being in the audience for a Q&A at a film festival and someone brought that up about how, how dare I do that. But then I didn't even have to respond. Someone else in the audience went, that was the point. That character was clearly an idiot and wasn't saying because, because that's not the voice of the filmmaker. And I just sat back and watched the audience like argue and debate. And I was like, this is, thank you. So what it was very uh, much a gift, but it's like, it makes me think of this moment here where it's the same thing. It's like, you know, Kelly Reinhardt is clearly not a racist. But it's like her, char- her characters are speaking authentically. Yes, yes. And there was, yeah, she established to get like films, like I went to Concordia back in the day, not that it was particularly good, no offense to Concordia, but I did communications. And, you know, we, we learned about the diegetic world and we learned about words like very similitude. And she really establishes a very similitude and just does her job in that way and lets us, as you said, observe. And I think that, that is her job if she's going to take that moment on is to just render it as specifically and truthfully as possible. Um, just other things like Michelle Williams's character says to the indigenous man at a certain point, uh, you can't even imagine the cities we've built. Like what a tiny detail. Can you imagine that script? Like, I hope that was on the page and not in any way ad lib or something, because that is an amazing detail of character. Like, she's a really flesh-up character. The, she is herself at times horrifically racist and, and you know, just preposterous. And then this is well protecting him. Yeah. If that was an ad-lib, that'd be a very impressive ad-lib. Very. But, you know, Michelle Williams is really talented, so it's very possible. And also just the way that film worked, a lot of it had to be found. There's no way all of that was scripted. Like, like that last shot, that, that last shot where, where, where reverse POV through the tree limbs... I mean, I got to imagine they location scouted and was like, oh, check this out. There, I oh, got yeah. The script, you know, it's like, and then she looked through the limbs of a tree. I mean, if she, if that is in the script, amazing. But I find it hard. Yeah, that's just it. And even like that conversation I was referring to earlier with, with the men are off talking about what to do. It's like, I'm sure it was just a moment where it's like, go over there and just kind of like figure out what you're doing. Yeah. You know, within these confines. Yeah. Because that moment yeah. really wasn't about them saying anything specific. It was about like being in Michelle Williams' point of view and going, these men are fucking lost. They don't know what the hell they're doing. Who the hell is leading me? 
which I love because look at where we're at. Donald Trump and Michael Pence and all their buffoon white horrible men are literally leading us right now in in a time where more than ever it's very dangerous that the buffoonery of these privileged white men are the you know the people in the glass castles like it's it she she i think that um i understand why some people were impatient with it when it came out but i think that there's so many gorgeous details in it that if you're just not paying attention that's on you that's not on her she did her job and that's it no, and it's the kind of movie that takes some. It take it. You have to learn its style and its pace, and the, yeah. and, and it allows you to do that. But it's like you know, by the time you, it's the kind of movie that if you don't like this kind of movie, you'll know that within twenty minutes. Yeah. Uh, but if you're into it within twenty minutes, you're like, oh, I'm into. The, I'm now. I'm in. I'm in the warm bath, and now I'm just observing and enjoying it. Uh, and then by the end, it's just like, yeah, it's it's kind of just. It took a little while warmed over me because like you talking about like it's like I've just been watching you know some popcorn movies recently with my kids and whatnot and so I'm like all right I have to this is the this is a pace that I haven't you know watched in like a a beat uh but it's like yeah it's like when it's in the hands of someone who knows what the fuck they're doing it's really great when you have these moments that pay off because it's also the kind of movie that it's like so many people watch things uh and this is why normally when i do the podcast you know people come over to my place and i have a screening room there and we watch together right because i find so many people like you know when they're watching films in their own home they're 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 on their phone and watching something halfway yeah and this is not the kind of movie where you can watch it halfway because it's like a silent film if you're not paying attention to the details and the nuances and whether you're literally reading the subtitles like you were or like just paying attention to every line in detail, you're going to miss what the movie really is. You can't just sit there and listen to it like it's uh, an audio book. Agreed, which as a filmmaker destroys me and drives me nuts that people do watch films that way. And um, I've definitely been guilty of stopping films for a second because I needed to do something or wanted to do something. Or definitely if we weren't doing this the way we did, I probably would have stopped it more times for longer and just taken a a breather because much as I am a big film nerd, those kinds of films that, you know, have become more difficult for my bad attention span to, to sit through in one seating. Uh, like, I like that you do it live, ideally, because, yeah, uh, you know, that's the joy also of going to a movie in, in the theater. Um, but definitely um, people watching a film like this or any film in that way, it, yeah, it terrifies me. Because the thing that is the most exciting as a filmmaker is to work on those tiny details of meaning that, you know, hold together whole structures. And like in my film, like it, love it, hate it, as long as you're critical about it, I don't care. But there's details about, you know, he gives Anna the phone and then he gets this text message and it says mom and he has to change the name. Like if you're not paying attention to that stuff and you're just looking away for a sec, a lot is missed and it's, you know, five seconds of screen time or something. And it's not an action scene, so. No, and that's just it. And me, and I'm a filmmaker who is, you know, very dialogue heavy in my stuff. But it's like I found as I as I go along, you know, I I, I try to do as much as I can to try to make things as visual as possible. Because I I was, you know, years ago I remember stumbling across Steven Soderbergh had taken uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark and stripped all the sound out and desaturated the color and just made it black and white and put like this techno score against it and put it up on his website. 
And the idea was like, just watch it and watch the staging. Don't pay attention. You're not paying attention to color anymore. You're not paying attention to dialogue. Can you follow this movie? Just watching the composition of the shots. And it's fascinating. And I find I'll do that now if I'm on a flight and I'm bored and there's nothing I want to watch and I haven't brought anything I want to read. I'll look around at what other people are watching and just tune into what they're watching without any sound for a few minutes and be like, can I follow the action and what the story's telling based on just watching the visuals? Uh, and it's interesting to see what, what, you know, shows or films you do that well and which ones I'm like totally lost. No idea who, who the fuck is who or what's going on. And I'm like, that's something that I have to put on myself to be aware of as well. Yeah. Big time. How was it watching Raiders of the Lost Ark with black and white and Technoscore? I mean, Spielberg is a master of staging, right? So it's just like watching the way, just just watch that on your own. With uh, It's great because the problem is I've tried to do that with that movie without watching that version of it, but it's hard because you just get caught up in it because it's so much fun. So yeah. you really do have to do that to force, force yourself to not get caught up in like the dialogue and the story and all that kind of stuff. But it's great. like Just the way he introduces characters and leads you here and there. It's really, I mean, if nothing else, I'm always amazed by Spielberg's ability to stage action. And he does this thing that uh, is referred to as like the invisible oneer, where he doesn't, like you, there's so many oneers in his work that you don't even realize it because he's not trying to show off with it. He's just being really efficient and really stylized in a way that's invisible. Yeah, yeah. Well, is that did did you watch that every frame of painting? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that's that that one. That's where they coined the phrase "the invisible winner" by him. Yeah, yeah, it's really great. Yeah, I studied the fuck out of that before I made the last movie because I wanted to like try to copy that technique and and really work on it. But cool. Yeah. Crazy beans. Uh, what else? Especially, like, I was thinking halfway through this, I'm like, what? Like, just in terms of just the period and style, and clearly, you know, she's got a, a bigger budget than she had on something like Wendy and Lucy. But not, it's not like it has incredible, it has amazing production value just because where it's being shot and whatnot. But it's like, I'm sure this movie could have been made for pennies because it's really just wardrobe and those three wagons and then, you know, some, some, some safety coordinators for when they're moving shit around and just, you know, they probably, they probably would have hadn't been trained, had to ride certain things and do all the things they were doing, but it's really a low budget movie that feels much bigger than it needs, than it is. Yeah. And I, and I'm fairly certain that when Michelle Williams works with her and, and all those actors, uh, you know, they're just working for scale and doing. Oh yeah. Game. So it's it probably uh, is that the next film she made after Wendy and Lucy, and then she made Night Moves, right? And then Certain Women, and then now First Cow. That sounds one. right. Yeah, I think I think it was probably. I mean, Wendy and Lucy was like three hundred thousand bucks, so I definitely it was more than that. But it definitely wasn't extravagant. I think she's a full time professor at like Brown or something. But um, no. And really, it's like if you scouted that those locations properly, you can shoot that all within your base camp, like within yes. like probably five I minutes of your base camp. Yeah. yeah, you just change the yeah. As long as you go in the middle of nowhere, you just change. You just look around. Now we're in a whole new area. Totally. It's yeah, like shooting I mean, in the woods. Yeah, the economy of every of everything, the execution and the vision, and I just felt like also for for me with her 
with how she executes and just her vision overall. Um, I respond a lot more to this than something like certain women, which maybe if I watched right now, after watching this, I'd be more amenable to. I was not maybe in the right space to watch it, but it just, to put it crudely, I just got bored. Whereas with Night Moves or with this, Night Moves just had, have you seen Night Moves? That's no. the one with Jesse Eisenberg. That's the one where she kind of pays off the kind of ominous foreboding she builds up the most. And there was just like, I don't know, it, look, it looked at this like woke, lefty, uh, you know, revolutionary wannabe guy in this way that I just really appreciated. And looked at the violence of, you know, like I'm obviously a left-leaning person as opposed to a right-leaning person, but I am not for all the massively mad, maddening, woke Ex, you know, extreme left stuff. And I find yeah. at times to be as bullying as anyone. And so she looked at a character like that um, per a revolution, a, rev, uh, um, a, a mutinous act. And uh, I just felt that it was like, had horror tropes in it that were really, uh, just really expertly executed. And there was just like a sense of dread in the film that was just really dominant. And I feel like, Meeks cut off just the film right before it being the film right before that had just like elements of just like a threat built up very quietly that I appreciated. I wasn't on the edge of my seat, but I was like, fuck, how, you know? Oh, there was a moment there at the end where it's just like, and she, I mean, she was using music to rare effect, but where it was just building up and you're like, oh, fuck, this is the, this is what happens. And then it's yeah. the next day, all of a sudden it's like, oh, okay, it didn't happen. But it's like, she, I mean, she's a filmmaker that really knows how to put you in the point of view of the characters mm-hmm. and make you feel how they're feeling and the little anxiety and the dread and the worry and the paranoia. You know, like, there's that great scene with Paul Dano uh, in the middle of the night where he's like, I saw him signaling. He's, you know, he's just, and he's, it's just like, you're being fucking paranoid. This will look better tomorrow. Yeah, I love that scene per their paranoia. Um, because you're, because again, it's like no, no one, like you're not really blaming anyone for how they're feeling because we don't know who this guy is. Totally, you know. I I've, seen, felt, I, I, I've seen enough westerns to know how this this doesn't always end well. <laughs> yeah, and I felt like I felt like for my taste, if it was pushed a little bit more, I wouldn't have thought that it was. I, I do, I really appreciate how reserved and restrained and subtle she can be, but especially with that scene you're bringing up, if it was a bit more terrifying and a bit more charged. I definitely wouldn't be like, oh gosh, is that ever too much? Like, if anything, I just feel like for all her beautiful um, control that, you know, if she did just for the the world we were living in back then and we still live in now, um, there's no question, you know, like me keeps on saying, let's string them up or let's kill them now, let's kill them now. I just think that per the dread she builds, if anything, it's not even a, a, a... it's not a criticism of her work. She is so in control of what she's doing. Just taste-wise, if it got darker, I would be fine with that. Yeah. It's interesting, too, because I was thinking about... Um, I'll be honest. I didn't think about it until you brought it up, about how like relevant it is to right now. But as soon as you said it, I'm like, oh, yeah, of course. But it's fascinating. Like, And I don't know if it's just that because of what we're going on in the world is going on in the world is so unprecedented and unique, and we're all going through it. But it's it's funny how how often I've seen like the parallels to a lot of the movies I'm I'm watching or rewatching uh, that are in the world. Like we just watched uh, for the podcast, the episode just came out of the pianist, and it was just like and just thinking about the Holocaust 
is very similar to this, like all what everyone was going through. I mean, that's such a grand scale. I'm not trying to say like, oh, what we're going through is on level with the Holocaust. But it's just the idea of like, it really puts into perspective how easy we've all got it and how this is nothing compared to like a real tragedy like that, where it's just like, you're being upended, you're being kicked out of your homes and you're not being told why for any good reason. This shit is just happening to you because you were there. You know, you're not, you're born into this time and place and sorry, but that's the hand you've been dealt. Fully. And I think about those kinds of things a lot. I mean, it's a bit of a, uh, departure from literally talking about Meek's cutoff, but per this moment in time and that line in Meek's cutoff where like they talk about should one, should one uh, of us just go ahead to not have to all take our wagons down the steep hill and just see if there's water. And then Will Patton's character is like, no, we're all in this together. And, you know, again, like all like Gupta, Dr. Sanjay Gupta and, and, and all these very wealthy celebrities keep saying, we're all in this together. What the fuck are you talking about? Number one, we're not in this with you whatsoever. And if you keep saying we're all in this together, isn't that on a level just saying we weren't in anything together before? We were completely not in anything together. Please stay the fuck away from us. We're just going to continue to build our hedges higher and higher and our fucking moats bigger. And we're going to make our castles just harder to fucking break into. But now it'd be really shitty if you got one of us sick. Um, we're kind of hoping to still be immortal. So like, please just, we're all in this together. And I just feel like, um, per what you just said, like, like I'm a fucking Jew born in Montreal because my Oma and Opa, my mom's parents got lucky and they lost, of course, many, many people in the Holocaust, but my Opa just happened to run away from home. And my Oma saw Hitler speaking in a square and she was able to get out and go to London. Yeah. Um, and I just happened to be alive. I, I'm a European. My parent, my family's all religious refugees. I'm not a Canadian. I just happened to be born in Montreal. And I'm very fortunate to be that. Um, but per this moment and how some people are being extraordinarily brave, but some people are endlessly talking about how bored they are or calling their homes prisons. Give me over. Yeah, I can't. And Ellen DeGeneres called her mansion. She's like, now I know what it's like to be in prison because I've had to stay in my mansion. She apologized, but she had to. But um, per that, that, that sentiment of we're all in this together, that is in Meek's cutoff, it is strange to see people like very wonderful artist work made outside of this time completely and just find those strange ways it is connected to it. Because that's to me the lie about this time that drives me the craziest. That's just it. That's interesting. It's an, I, I love that. Because I think of it like my version of that is more that it's like, it sucks for everyone right now. So who am I to complain? It's like nobody has it well. It's like, it's hard for everyone, no matter if you're, especially if you're, you know, someone that's right at the front lines of it. Like those are the people that it's harder for, obviously. But it's like everyone's dealing with some version of not normal right now. So nobody gets to complain. For sure. And I think we have an absolute right. The way I just digest life and understand trying to, you know, survive a lifetime on this planet. I, 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 I of course, think I have a right to complain to my dad or my partner or just share if I'm feeling particularly depressed or finding it a heavy moment. I can share that with my friends and family privately. But once people start posting endlessly, I don't know if people don't understand this, but when you press post or whatever you press to post it, it's a public message. Yeah. Like 
if you're going to post shit on the fucking internet, you're making a public statement. That's not to your mommy or your daddy or your sister or your brother. So just be like, take responsibility and be, be held accountable by yourself. If you're going to talk about being bored, like I have a, a buddy, I love him, but he's, you know, uh, a white gentleman from small town in Ontario. He hasn't had horrible problems in life. He just particularly hasn't. And he started posting shit around the fucking time of like the beginning of things when, you know, we were being asked to, to, to self-isolate. Um, he was taking pictures in line in Los Angeles where he lives and, and tra- outside Trader Joe's socially distancing from other people. And he was taking pictures of that and then posting on the internet in line at the prison cafeteria. Fuck it. You're not in prison. Black gentlemen, uh, mostly innocent, go to prison in, in the country that you're living in right now. You're yeah. a white dude from fucking Canada who's not in fucking prison. You're in line at Trader Joe's. You've lost the freedom to just walk in whenever the fuck you want, buy shit, and leave whenever the fuck you want. That's what happened in your life, mate. You That's can't prison. do whatever you want whenever you want, so you're in prison. Yeah. And- you're- you're about to get whatever food is still left. It might be limited to what it usually is, but you're still able to buy. You know, like, prison is like you show up and there's maybe two options if you're lucky. Prison is fucking often. Now I'm really going off topic, but you know, I made a film about the opiate epidemic, amongst other things. And uh, I'm, I, you know, I, 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 um, I, I hope we all have tremendous compassion for for people suffering from opiate opiate addiction. But, um. It's not lost on me that I'm a white dude making a film about the opiate epidemic, which everybody cares about. Maybe now we only talk about COVID, understandably, but everybody cared about the opiate epidemic, meaning it was in the papers. People talked about it. People say a lot of things like this. We're all in it together. Thing. They say, well, it could happen to anyone. When the crack fucking epidemic happened in the 80s and 90s and Reagan changed everything with the 101 rules and black families went to jail for lifetimes doing the exact same shit white folks were doing with cocaine, nobody gave a shit. They didn't make films about it. They didn't put it in the fucking news. People just lost their fucking lives. And if this is a diversion from what we were talking about, I apologize. No, no, it's all good. Bring it back to Meek's cutoff. What I appreciate about a filmmaker like Kelly Reichardt is she means business when it comes to simple truth telling. There's no bullshit. There's no lies. Crash won a fucking Oscar. That film was so chock full of ridiculous candy store gobbledygook about systemic racism. She actually, whatever she's talking about, whatever story she's telling, deals in simple truths, which unfortunately makes her a niche filmmaker instead of a populist one. But... She does her job when she goes to town. And my friend is a dipshit. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Exactly. Yeah. No, I, I really, no, I think all of, all of what you're saying is extremely relevant. And if it's not, that's what this podcast does as well. Uh, yeah. No, I love it. I think it's great. I think I love that uh, the, the comparisons to today and just, it's just, it's really great. I was not, I think like on paper, I would look at this and go, oof. That's going to feel like homework watching that. But I was surprised by how much I just like really, really like I compared to a warm bath. I just really warm. I just really soaked in and enjoyed it and flowed along and just kind of felt like I took it all in and uh, and loved every little moment of it. And I'm glad it ended. It was like at first I was like, oof, that's a that's a strong, bold ending. But then the more I thought about it, I was like, yeah, it's like any other ending I would have ultimately been. Uh, unsatisfied with 
because yeah. I, I want it's, it's very important that this movie just like what we're going through right now we have to know how we feel about things you know we don't know we're, especially right now we're in the thick of this we don't know where this is going how it's going to end all we have to do is have faith in what we have faith in and and just go from there that's all we can ever do about anything that though i love that you said that because to me that was part of the film where it's like Again, it's just you're a very fucking fine artist if you can make something completely outside of this moment in time and somehow your film is so prescient and so about this time. And there's no end to their search for water. And I, I don't, I hope, you know, my feeling right now, I was talking to um, a, a very dear friend of mine today, a really wonderful actress. And, um, you know, we were just saying how like, we want to stay hopeful and we want to take it a day at a time. But there's moments where it just feels like there's no end in sight. And that was one of the things about her film, which I really appreciated seeing right now. And I understand that some people just want to watch popcorn films right now, and that's cool. Or they just want to laugh, and that's cool. But what I feel really appreciative about is that, for me, all I want to see when I watch something is that a filmmaker is doing their version of holding up a mirror to whatever their reality or their society is. And it's very specifically their mirror. And I just felt like, that almost like waiting for Godotian endless trekking with no water in sight. And then the indigenous gentleman is just walking off into the horizon. That could have been so fucking like, uh, like in the, in the hands of a white person ending the film that way, it could have been possibly very disrespectful or unserious or unspecific. And I never felt like she was taking on a subject or, or a character she didn't have a, a respectful command over. And it just spoke to me a lot about how settlers have come to this land, um, the damages they've done, the relationships that have from the get-go been violent and uh, built on adversary. I mean, Paul Dano's character is like, um, you know, I'll give you a blanket now. You get us water, you'll get another blanket. And he's talking to him like he is, you know, like a mentally challenged child. And I didn't know this. My partner um, is an indigenous lady, and she told me that, um, uh, I guess, uh, maybe in the late 1700s, uh, the British army gave um, the smallpox. community smallpox back. I didn't know that. I was completely an ignorant, uh, silly boy about that. I did not know that. But whether or not she had any intention to in any way forebode anything about that, that moment is so pregnant because of that. And that's like, again, it's just... It's just really compact um, economical filmmaking. Yeah, I thought about that too because I, uh, I I do know that history. Uh, where it's just like I can see how he might be he might worry that this is a trick. It's not like the comfort there expressed. Anyway, yeah. So that that did stick in my mind, but as, as that moment, but it could be a quin. It, whether it's a coincidence or not, it's interesting that it like it stands out. But don't you feel like to me, I don't care if she intended that or not. Like I, um, I like Under the Skin is my favorite film. And to me, it's such a, a beautiful film about how violent the planet. It's, it's such a it's such a respectful and, and to me, beautiful film about how violent this planet is towards women. The more human that alien becomes, the more endangered she is until she's murdered, set on fire by a by a forester, by a man who's supposed to be taking care of nature. And maybe that's not Jonathan Glazer's intention at all. Fucking, what's the, Harmony Crin is always saying there's no point to what he's doing. He just, you know, I just wanted to see nuns fall out of the sky. 
But Gummo is like, to me, one of the most artful films about America. And I don't care if it wasn't his intention. You know what I mean? I don't care if, if she just put a, a number of ingredients together in a very specific way. Um, I don't think her job is for the intention to match my experience. It's for me, ideally, to have an experience that um, is larger than the sum of its parts, I guess, you know? No, that's just it. I mean, great films are just full of details that we're allowed to infer on our own, right? And we have just as much, I mean, our interpretation, it's the same as any art, right? So I always think of, you know, when you go to a gallery and then there's the, uh, I remember being like, I think it was like the the art gallery in Ottawa once when I was in like like grade 10 or whatever it was on one of those trips. And one of the paintings was basically just white. It was just white on canvas with some texture on it. And I remember like watching this, you know, 30 something, 40 something woman look at it and going, that's not art. That's bullshit. It's stupid. It's not really anything. And then she went over and she read the artist's like manifesto or whatever it is on the side. She went, Oh, well now it's amazing. And I was just like, and it's like, wow. So you, because you read the statement, it means something to you now. It's interesting that you just couldn't watch it and, and let it mean something to you with that. But now that you know what someone else wanted it to be, you can take art away from it. I don't, have you ever read Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? Uh-uh. There's this amazing, my favorite chapter in it, and it's kind of a non sequitur chapter. I'm reading it to my son right now, or we're reading it together. There's this great chapter and it talks about time travel. And basically, I'll, I'll sell, sum it up really quickly where uh, basically the story is this, is that this guy, uh, you know, once wrote this, he was, you know, he lived in the, in the jungle and, uh, and this woman left him. And so he wrote all these amazing, heartbreaking, wonderful poems about the experience and his feelings on these, these, these leaves. And then when he died, they were found sometime later and turned into basically, you know, what we would consider the works of William Shakespeare, like the, the most profound book of, of writing ever to exist. Um, and then, of course, hundreds of years later, time travel comes into invention and this um, correcting fluid company wonders, well, could these poems be even better still if he had access to our product? And so they go back in time and make him this like uh, offer to make him rich and famous if he'll only sign this deal to like fix a couple of his poems and just make a couple of changes. And so of course he takes the money. The girl never ends up leaving him. He never ends up going through these feelings uh, with which he would write the poems from, but that's okay. Cause they have a copy of the book. He just needs to copy them onto the leaves. And now the argument becomes, are these poems suddenly worthless because he's just copied them from a book. Now he didn't write them out of emotion anymore. Um, that's interesting I did not know anything about that book and it makes me think of this it makes me think of the ideas like is art only valuable because of the artist's original intent or or is it should it's it enough to stand on its own you know because the argument being in that is that it's like well no the poems it doesn't matter if he just copied them or if he wrote them originally they still mean exactly what they always meant to you yeah um, I mean I, I mean by definition to me if, if I read that book and have no idea what its intentions were uh it doesn't matter uh, if I found out something. I mean, this is a very weak analogy, but it's like, um, yeah, you know, I listen to an album and I have an experience and then it affects me or it doesn't. And then you find out 
you know, that person has done an amazing thing or has done a terrible thing. I mean, if we can't separate art and artists to a point, and that also, that also has to be, I guess, for our own, you know, spectrums of what we can handle. Like, when I was younger, I was a bit ridiculous. And I was like, oh, I can't listen to Mad Season because they wanted to call themselves the Gacy Bunch. And that's after John Wayne Gacy. And John Wayne Gacy was a serial killer. It's like, you can't listen to anything if you're going to be that strict. John Lennon was terrible. You know, fucking Gal Gadot wants to sing Imagine at me with a bunch of celebrities. I'm going to please say shut the fuck up for sure. I don't want to hear you do that because you're an asshole. You don't know anything about what you're doing. That is written by a dude who definitely abused his first wife and his kid. So in this moment, maybe don't pick that fucking song. That being said, I'm not going to sell my Beatles box set. I want to listen to those albums. You know, am, am I wrong to listen to the Beatles knowing John Lennon was a bad guy? No, I don't personally think so. If I knew he murdered people, I might choose to never listen to them again. But I know he did bad things. Does that make me bad? Yeah, we there's suddenly a lot of art that disappears if we uh, if we can't separate the art from the artist. Of it. Yeah, I mean, exactly. come on, like, yeah. But and that is obviously uh, on a parallel line to what you were talking about with maybe no vanishing point. But but. I guess to me, the bottom line is, is that we have to separate art and artists to a pretty significant point. And but, I, yeah, I don't care. I don't care if Kelly Reichardt copied this, you know, truly. I don't care if somebody went back in time and she just, you know, gave her money and showed her the, you know, the thing to copy because my experience of it is divorced from her experience of making it. But what's, what's amazing is that it's like, especially bringing it back to like now, is that when I'm watching it right now, you know, like you said, it's like, was this her, you know, artistic interpretation of like what, the housing crisis or whatever you're saying was going on back then? Or is, but the fact that it doesn't matter what, what she was trying to like lampoon or, or, or trying to gaze upon is relevant now because of this new experience we're all going through. Like, there's no way she, you know, especially that phrase, we're all in this together is like the slogan for today. And the fact that it's like, that was never her intention. Oh, there's no way. It was a decade ago she was making this film. But the fact that that's come around is just, that again, just speaks to great art. Is like it's universal in a way that it doesn't matter what she was intending. It's still speaking to where we're at today as a culture, yeah. especially now more than ever. Yeah, and I think in that in, in the film, uh, the person that said it was it was the most genuine character. It wasn't ingen disingenuous. It wasn't manipulative, which I find it to be extraordinarily now. Um, so, like, I totally, yeah, I don't, there was no intention behind it. But as you say, yeah, just good work. Well, I guess that's the thing of like be, not just being timeless, but um, I guess really good work. Like, I don't know, like my favorite album is Unknown Pleasures by Joy Division. And like when it came out, I think people didn't really give a shit about them. And then little by little, they had a following. And people were like, oh, this is good. But like you hear that production by Martin Hannon, you hear certain lyrics like an insight or or whichever song, maybe like uh, Shadow Play. And you just like hear some of the production that back then was really new. But then, you know, like some of the like laser sounds and insight, like a lot of techno came around. And that was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. everyone kind of sounds like that now. And then you fast forward a bit more to 2020 and like that again just sounds really fucking new right now. Like per, you know, what music sounds like right now. And like to me, that's just a hallmark of like not to be cheesy or hyperbolic, but it kind of just transcends time and the time it was made in. You know, I don't personally feel that strongly about Meek's Cutoff. Like it's not the unknown pleasures of films for me, but there are films like that for me. I certainly feel like Hunger 
by by Steve McQueen. Or to be honest, one of my favorite films of all time is Weathering Heights by Andrew Arnold. You ever see that? Not like a long time ago. Yeah. It's, it, it's funny because it's a bit similar to Meeks Cutoff insofar as like some people heralded it as a masterpiece when it came out. And then some people were just like, they hated it. But I find it to be one of the most beautiful flicks I've seen. Yeah, those are the best kind of films. Uh, I talk about even my my eleven year old when he looks at like you know Rotten Tomato scores, and I'm like, just so you know, if it's fifty percent, that means half the audience liked it. Also, I find that a really good sign when I see something like that because it means it's divisive. Yeah, it means that there's there's an audience for this movie. If it's zero, then it's like oof, it's probably bad. But it's like if there's if it's if it's at least fifty fifty, I'm like, okay, I there's a there's a half a chance I might enjoy this. I'm actually more inclined to watch something that has a 50 than something that has a 90 something because especially per today that I find that hard to trust when something's got like that. Yeah. That means it's meant for everyone and therefore it's meant for no one. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Also it's like, yeah, this is a bigger and different conversation. Um, but the culture of critically writing about cinema has changed a lot and it is kind of geared towards your kid just looking at a score or me just looking at a score, or you just looking at a score, as opposed to like reading Pauline Kael's, you know, like there was a craft that was engaged. Richard Brody's maybe still a really good writer or some of the people in The Guardian. Um, I'm a bit wary of like the quick hit shit, you know? Um, oh, clickbait, like shit talk, yeah. journalism. Yeah, tell more about having a clever one-liner than like critically analyzing, yeah. I just like reading good criticism to be honest yeah no i miss i miss ebert like i believe that it was one of those guys that just genuinely wanted to love every movie he ever saw and if he didn't like it at least he had a point of view where he's like this is who would like it it wasn't for me but it's for these people yeah you know and understood that there was an audience for every film even if he wasn't it yeah yeah and he was a cineast and um yeah 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 any final thoughts um Fair question. I don't know that I do. I mean, this is cool, man. I love that you do this and it's fun. I appreciate, you know, coming on. I guess I just feel like much love to Kelly Reichardt that she is undeniably herself, you know? Like, I don't think it's so easy to, um, that was her third film. She went from doing like Old Joy with Will Oldham and that other cat to making Wendy and Lucy with Michelle Williams and a dog to like <laughs> a bigger cast, you know? Like maybe not huge production value compared to <laughs> Avengers or something. But um, she's a fucking filmmaker, and um, I will always watch what she does, regardless of whether or not I adore it. I don't adore First Cab, but I'm really glad I watched it. And I think that she's an important voice in the, in the you know, ever-changing, like, culture of new filmmakers and auteurs. She's a true auteur, and I, I got love for her for that. Yeah, no, I love that it's like you watch this, even, even though she didn't write this. Um, oh, did you not? No, she didn't write this. But it's like you watch this and you're like, nobody else would have made this the way you made it. Yeah. You know, and yeah. that's what I want. That's, what, that's all you can want from a movie, right? If anyone could have been swapped out in the director's chair, that's, that's a problem. Big time. Yeah. I always wished we could have seen Lynn Ramsey's uh, And Get Your Gun or And You Get Your Gun. I never watched the film once she got replaced, but I was always excited to see that. Do you know that whole story? Of, no. Um, after she made my, my favorite Lynn Ramsey films are her first two are Ratcatcher and Morvan Callar. I'm not crazy about um, we need to talk about Kevin or um, you're never really here, but I appreciate a lot about them. But before we, we need to talk about Kevin, she was supposed to make this cowboy movie with Natalie Portman. And I think she was really struggling around that time 
as far as I know, this is just, you know, the stupid fucking shit people talk about, but it seems like maybe she was having a hard time. I think with alcohol, but what does it matter? She was having a hard time. And um, right up until like production, she was the filmmaker. And then she either had to step down or she got fired. I have no idea, but they replaced her with, I don't know who, and the film was supposed to be like a disaster. But she just got such an undeniable vision and voice. And like, she's another filmmaker. I love her first two films, but even in her last two, even if I don't love the films, I love the choices she makes as a filmmaker. And I guess that's the thing is that these people are making choices as you know, I'm, I'm more trained as an actor than a filmmaker, but you start to speak pretty early in your, in your experience, in your career as, a film, as an actor about like choice making. And um, when I was a younger actor, I had no idea what that meant. All I knew to do was like learn my lines and rely on, I guess, instinct. But you start to understand what it means to say you made choices in that scene. And then, of course, as a filmmaker, it's always about all the choices you're making. And I think that there are a lot of movie makers who don't make any choices. It's about coverage and it's about that TV thing of putting shit on a slider and just doubling up and just being economical. And we call them shooters. And I think that does kind of bleed into filmmaking. And I think that Kelly Reichardt, is, you know, makes bold choices. And I guess yeah. Yeah. it's the same as what we do. We just call it our vision, right? And the idea is like we cycle it all through <laughs> that, that one specific vision. But that's, I mean, that's the way I talk to actors when it's like, when I'm not, when the scene's not working, you know, my first question is like, what are the, what's the choice you're trying to make right now? Cause I think we need to make another choice mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and just go from there. Cause that's all you can do. You can just say, hey, we're doing this right. And that's the same thing where it's like, I, 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 I on my sets, I, I'm a firm believer in like best idea win. So everyone can bring me an idea. And then based on how it fits through my choices, I'll know whether it can be in the movie or not. For and sure. if, and if it doesn't, it doesn't. Cause it's, again, it all comes down to like, choices and if we don't have we don't make any and any then what are you doing yeah yeah i firmly agree with that yeah. love it uh, this is a blast this is so much fun i'm glad we got to do this me too man thanks a lot for having me yeah 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 we'll do it again sometime i'd love to yeah be well and as they say stay safe man all right all right see you guys let's all go thanks for joining us for meek's cutoff black hole films is a proud member of the that shelf podcast network you can listen to other episodes of our show and other That Shelf podcasts on thatshelf.com. Please subscribe, leave comments, spread the word, do all the things that let others know you like the show and how they can check it out. You can find me on Twitter, at Lon Jeremy, and go to Facebook and join the group Black Hole Films. And until next time, go watch something you've never seen before. Thanks. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a